Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and today I'm excited to have Dave Coldblood, who's a general partner at Vibecap and is an ex-employee at Facebook, and he was earlier the CEO of WaveChat. Uh, Dave has done his bachelor's from Connecticut College. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you you reaching out and setting this up. Awesome. So you know, so you know, you you have an interesting journey because you 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 worked in Facebook for for a decade. Uh, you you ran WaveChat, and now you know, you know you are, are a VC. Uh, why did you get you know? How did you get into this world of startups? Yeah. Uh, not I, when I say a less typical journey, I actually mean it. It's not like the memes you see about VCs when they say, "Yeah, not a typical journey." Went to Harvard Business School, worked at Goldman, and now I'm a VC. Um, I actually went to a small liberal arts college called Connecticut College. It's on the East Coast. I had no intention of getting into technology. I was always interested in technology, uh, but never really learned how to code or anything like that. And after school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, one of my friends that I grew up with, who actually did go to Stanford and studied computer science at Stanford, he was an engineer at Facebook at the time. He said, why don't you just get a job at Facebook? All my friends are getting a job at Facebook. And I was like, oh, okay, it sounds good. Uh, Beats being a bartender. So, um, Moved out to the West Coast from New Jersey, when I, where I was living in my mom's attic, and uh, started out in customer support at Facebook. Uh, obviously, got got very lucky and was able to surround myself with incredibly smart, incredibly ambitious, you know, world changing people, and learned a ton. I like to compare it to you know you might not be the most talented basketball player in the world, but if you're practicing with the Golden State Warriors every day, you know, you're going to get better at basketball. So a similar thing happened to me, was able to learn a lot in my 10 years there, uh, saw scale at a ridiculous, ridiculous level. Uh, very few companies in the world have over a billion users and Facebook is one of them. Uh, then, then after that, decided to try my hand at startup, uh, learned a lot of really interesting and vital lessons that doing a startup that I hopefully now can apply to, to being a VC. Uh, the number one thing is really no one gives a shit about what you're building. <laughs> uh, you know, you even when I started working at Facebook, there were millions of people on Facebook. But to get from zero to one, and especially in a, I built this social consumer social app, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, that was probably the, the biggest, the biggest lesson that I learned. Um, we can also talk about the, the content and social audio itself, but, um, wound that down a little bit before COVID and had always been interested in, in investing in the sense of investing is a very multidisciplinary, multivariate type of, uh, type of workflow where you need to bring in domain specific expertise and human psychology and macroeconomic conditions and lot and probability and 
come as someone who came from a had a liberal arts background and I'm I would like to say that I'm generally good at a lot of things, but I don't have a deep, deep expertise in say engineering or math or um writing or anything like that. But I was able to bring all of those things together and synthesize them. And I found that I was able to make predictions about where things were going, which is what you need to do to, to invest well, uh, a lot better than I was about maybe necessarily building them specifically myself. So I spun up the first fund uh, after I did the On Deck Angel Investing Fellowship. First fund started in July, 2021. Uh, did that for about a year. That was about a million dollar fund, uh, about halfway through uh, got connected with my current venture partner, Tim Ryan, and we decided to raise a fund too. Same thesis. Our thesis has been playing out a little too well, and we can talk about that uh, a little later on in the in the podcast if you want. But uh, decided to raise a fund too. We uh, same thesis, larger checks, larger allocation, uh, higher ownership percentages. That was going to be a a ten million dollar hard cap. Um, the bottom fell out of the market right when we started fundraising. So we're looking to call it a $5 million hard cap for this fund. And we do still have allocation open. So uh, we are a 506C fund. If uh, someone is interested in getting exposure to any of our fund two portfolio companies, uh, feel free to contact me. Um, and here we are. We're, it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. It's impossible to raise money as an emerging manager from LPs. but the deals we're seeing and the founders we're investing in are unbelievable. So I'll pause there. I know that was a, that was a lot, but uh, Rohit, like, is there anything you want me to dive in deeper? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think uh, a couple of interesting things. I mean, 10 years at Facebook is, is amazing. I mean, uh, any, uh, I've had few operators who worked at Facebook, but any, any any lessons you learned from Mark Zuckerberg? You know, is it is it you know? I mean, there, there's lot, there's been movie about uh, uh, about Facebook, but what I mean, in specifically, what did you actually learn from you know the operators there at Facebook, and especially Mark Zuckerberg? Is is he really that smart? Yes, he is really that smart. Um, <laughs> he so it's really interesting. Most people, the only interaction they have with. Mark is via the movie, the social network, yeah. which is you, it's really, I'm not sure if this has happened to you, but if you know a topic or a space or a place very intimately, and then you compare it to a media depiction of that, whether it's your hometown or uh, a particular topic, you know, you realize how skewed and off the perception is in the popular narrative. So I, in my, like, my experiences with him, he is just a good dude, like a general nice guy. Um, he is an absolute killer when it comes to business and is incredibly um, focused on succeeding and driving the business forward. But, you know, some of the memes about him being, you know, the devil or anything like that, it's just, it's a little silly. Mm -hmm. Uh the thing that the two things that I really learned, and this is a funny story. Um, so at Facebook, we used to do Q and A's, like all company Q and A's every Friday at 
four o'clock where any person could ask a question to Mark that they wanted. It lasted for an hour. Um, and at one of those talks, I think Frank Geary was there, the architect who had designed our campus. And there was a little bit of a Q&A session there. And Frank Geary was describing working with Mark to figure out what do you want the campus to look like? And Frank Geary, who is an incredibly successful person in and of himself, said, and then, you know, you have Mark over here, who is the singularly most focused human being I've ever met in my entire life, uh, which is how I would describe him. He's, once he gets that, it's kind of like Michael Jordan uh, when he was, um, you know, like game six of the NBA finals. He's just, every neuron in his brain is focused on this one narrow problem and then he can turn it off and switch to another thing. So the first thing is focus. Um, I don't know if everybody is, has the capability of focusing like that, but he can really apply himself to that. Um, and the second thing is the ability to disrupt yourself where, uh, and I'll tell another quick story. And this is a little bit more widely known, but I think it was in 2011, um, maybe it was an engineering manager or director. I think it was Corey Andreka came to him and said, we have a mobile problem. And he outlined this very, and they had facebook.com was a huge fucking deal. It was one of the most popular websites in the world. And this director comes to him, engineering director and says, listen, if we don't pivot the entire company to focus on mobile, you're going to go out of business. And, you know, in essence. So Mark sat there, he listened to what he had to say. He analyzed it and said, you know what? You're right. Let's change the entire trajectory of this 5,000 person company. And we are going to be completely focused on mobile now. And I think the rest is history. You know, people don't really, there was a question at one point. It's like, can Facebook ever make any money on mobile? Can they ever have a useful mobile app? I don't think that's really the question anymore, but you see how, um, how he was able to say, Facebook.com works for a while, but it's not in vogue or it's not going to drive us towards the future. Let's shift 5,000 people and billions of dollars to work on this new problem. So I guess those are the two things, the ability to focus really, really narrowly, and then the ability to, you know, like Jeff Bezos says, uh, strong opinions, lightly held, and be able to completely disrupt your, your life and yourself and your company if that is what needs to be done. Mm, that are interesting. And, uh, you know, you also talked about angel investing and you were part of the on-deck angels. So uh, were you investing your own personal capital into startups? And and did you have a, a you know, a mindset? Is there like a mindset change when you go from angel investing into, you know, in being like an institu- institutionalized investor? Yeah, so there's... A few different things. So I, st- I think I wrote my first <clears throat> angel check in 2012 or 2013. Yeah. And let's be clear. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. Yeah. One of my buddies started a company. I, it was a very, almost like a juvenile way of looking at things. I'm like, of course, this is awesome. Of course, I'll get money back. Um, and that persisted for a few years while I was operating at Facebook. And it's almost like the Dunning-Kruger effect where you 
you know nothing. And then all of a sudden you think you have a really great idea of how to do this and how great everything will be. And I wrote some pretty bad angel checks, 2014, 2015, 2016. Uh, not that the companies or the people themselves were bad, just not great process. Uh, and then you slowly realize after learning more, including uh, going on my own startup journey, doing the On Deck Angel Investing Fellowship, oh, I really know very, very little. And the margins are very, very thin. Um, and all of the pieces that go into it, it's not just, is this a great idea? It's, is this a great idea? And the time is right. Is this a great idea? And the founders are the right people to build it. Is this a great idea? And the approach that they're taking is the right approach so that they can survive to get to that ultimate vision. Um, so all these things, in addition to the, you know, the little nuances of, ownership percentage and, um, you know, what they're actually looking to do with the long-term vision and all of these things. And you just get, you know, you just get the reps in same thing. Like I said, with working at Facebook, you just show up to practice with Steph Curry every day and you'll get, you'll get better and better. And that's what I tried to do. Put myself around people who knew more than me. To have an interesting stat for you, to denote that the founder of beautiful lives Increase the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Got interesting. And um and you know you you started you talked about the fund one which is a million dollar fund and you know uh, the second fund is uh you know a five million dollar fund you're looking to raise to uh, you know 10 million dollar uh so you know what, what is the thesis for wipe are you you know what, what are the sound sectors are you focusing on and are you geography agnostic or do you uh, are you only you specific yeah so now we're getting into the the fun part talking about the thesis and uh kind of the the insane way that I view the world that maybe um, some people are, are agreeing with a bit more recently, but mm. coming, you know, I was born in 1983. So I grew up in the nineties with the internet where everything was wild and weird and things didn't work. And I saw, and I was on the internet a lot as a teenager and into my college years. And uh, you know, I was on IRC and ICQ, and I got to see the weird subcultures of the internet and how formative they were to driving uh, technology forward and driving the narrative of the world in the Overton window. But not everyone had access to the internet, and the internet wasn't available at all times on all parts of your body, like it is now with mobile and wearables and broadband and things like that. So taking that young experience with working at Facebook and seeing the power of scale and how quickly things can scale and uh, what scale does to uh, the world and to societies and to pieces of technology and how it just kind of breaks things and people don't really understand how impactful it can be, married those things and then right around COVID took a, took a step back and saw that along with a few other things as a catalyst for, we are beginning to see um, 
the traditional power structures that have existed come apart at the seams. So what started with, hey, you're starting to see a little bit of cracks in the 90s and the 2000s, and now everyone has access to these weird subcultures at all times, and uh, their uh, their wildest um, neur- neuroses can be can be amplified um, in in good and bad ways. Um, we are going to see every structure of the world come apart. That includes education, finance, healthcare, government, media. Okay, so what does this mean? Our thesis is that the world is going to be wild over the next 10 years. And we were already talking about this in 2021 before Ukraine got invaded, before there was going to be a war over Taiwan. Um, But there, as you no longer have the stability of a Harvard, a nation state government of the New York Times, um, all of these things are going to be rebuilt from the ground up. And in that, um, in that intermediary space, there are going to be some incredible companies, both from an impact and from a uh, pure investment uh, upside perspective. And so we married that with what do we know and what do we think drives the, um, the growth of these power structures and, Historically, if you look at it, it's technology. And what are the technologies that are really driving uh, people to build? It's crypto, which is a global coordination mechanism, starting off for money, but eventually sort of all value. It's a global trust and coordination mechanism. And then you pair that with AI, which has been part of our thesis since 2021. But I think now, now we can talk about it a little bit more. And then that leads into what we're calling deep science, which is the um, application of these exponential technologies to the physical world. Um, if you take a look at how much has the digital world changed since the 70s, it's ridiculous. It's a thousand percent, 10,000 percent change. You have a fucking iPhone in your pocket. How much has the physical world changed? Not that much. It still takes 45 minutes to drive from. San Francisco to Palo Alto, uh, trains still suck. Um, it still takes a long time to, you're still cooking and washing dishes by hand. Mm. Um, so now with the abstraction away of the coordination mechanism of crypto, uh, that abstracts away coordinating large groups of people and capital, the, um, the compute and the analysis skills of AI and the ability to abstract away like that, um, that brain power, you combine those two, we're starting to see the impact into um, real world assets, real world impact, physical things changing. So I'll pause there because that was a lot of uh, abstract talk. Uh, I'm more than happy to dive into concretely what we think this means, or if you wanted to go another direction, happy to do that too. Yeah, yeah, and so, so so the interesting thing is about about crypto. You know, I mean, uh, the last couple of years have taken a you know big hit on crypto, uh, and with with, with few uh, you know controversies. Um, do do you think you know like Bitcoin, Ethereum would be used, uh, uh, you know, in exchange of say you know uh, as a, as a dollar uh, in especially in you know 
uh, in Eastern countries and countries like China, where you know it's been banned, and and where you know investors like Charlie Munger are saying that you know it's it should be banned in the U.S. Uh, what are your right. thoughts, you know, <laughs> going forward on that? So I think everybody just needs to take a little breath, take a time out, zoom out a little bit. The in my opinion, the fundamental um, genius of Satoshi Nakamoto and the Nakamoto consensus was he solved trust at a global scale. So if you think about how does the world work 99% right now, I am a large bank. I sit in between Rohit, like, let's say I want to send you $100,000. Yeah. I'm going to send you a wire. There is a bank in the middle that has people working at it and is governed by laws. And, you know, maybe we live in the US, maybe we live in Argentina, maybe we live in Nigeria, maybe we live in North Korea. Um, but there is a central intermediary that is a governor for those trust interactions. That's the same thing for a scientific journal. You are a scientist and you have some information you want to publish. There is a central trust mechanism that says, okay, you can publish this and now this goes out into the world. Same thing for Harvard. Harvard is a central trust mechanism for this person is smart and knows law or knows computer science or whatever the case may be. Satoshi Nakamoto removed a quote unquote, trust me, bro type of institution. And these institutions worked well for hundreds of years. But as we get to the scale of digital and everyone being on the internet, you can't have a you can't teach people at Harvard computer science with the same level of like, and give them credentialing at the speed and allow the participation that you would want to. You can't have the participation and the speed that you would want to if the US central bank oversees everything. Um, you can't have the scientific innovation you want if you have a few journals putting a throttle on who is allowed to publish things who is allowed to participate in this ecosystem. So all that being said, the Ethereum blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, they are trust and consensus mechanisms. And what they will, there will eventually be money and monetary exchange as a form of trust and consensus mechanism. He has a dollar, I want $2, you know, send me that money over 3000 miles. But eventually, we, uh, we will be using these coordination, these digital coordination mechanisms, these digital trust mechanisms for every aspect of value transfer and trust transfer. Will it happen on the layer one Ethereum blockchain or the Bitcoin blockchain? Probably not. Um, it's a little bit unfortunate that the internet already existed when... Ethereum and Bitcoin were created because, and that there is a coin attached to it because it provides this undue attention to why isn't the Bitcoin blockchain ready for prime time of settling every single transaction in the world? It took 30 years for the internet to reach that scale. So it's almost like comparing, um, like we had TCP IP and FTP, um, in 1993 and, you know, email protocols. Um, 
were those ready for prime time of a billion people? No, you need to abstract away the complexity and build layers on top of layers, on top of layers, on top of layers. Um, it will, it's going to take some time and it's unfortunate that the media has run with this narrative, but I think people involved in crypto need to, um, take a look at themselves too, because they got caught up in the hype. You know, I was YOLOing into shit coins in 2021 too. Um, it's natural human behavior, but it's a boom cycle. It's a bust cycle. Carlota Perez talks about the, these types of boom and bust cycles. Um, a bunch of capital flew into it. 99% get washed out, but the 1% that remains is ridiculously valuable. And I'm actually, you know, it sucks the way that it went down with FTX committing fraud, but we will, the people that I know that are working in this space are really fucking smart and we have tons of capital in the ecosystem. I'm not concerned. It just will take a while. It'll take unless AI kills us all. Uh, it'll just take until 2027 or 2030. Yeah. Got interesting. And uh, yeah, again, another part you talked about is AI. And, you know, before the call, we, we, we talked about uh, Resortex, uh, which is, uh, you know, into into 3D, uh, 3D printing. So, um, uh, interested to know, you know, how did you get an allocation into 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 the startup, and uh, you know, uh, and why did you why did you invest into Resortex? Yeah, so just to give some, and we can uh, <laughs> we can give a little background. So we're recording this before the actual public announcement, but it should be released afterwards. Um, we just got word. Rosotics is one of our fund two companies. They do additive manufacturing for the, the aerospace industry. Um, they, they've achieved this significant breakthrough in metallurgical science and they can just prove like uh, print like 10 X faster, uh, 10 X more efficiently. Uh, we invested in them before that was proven. Um, but now they've proven that and now they're raising a very large round led by Draper Associates. Um, and there will be a public announcement with the governor of Arizona on March 24th around building a facility in Arizona. We will share that on our Twitter handle and on our LinkedIn and everything like that. But um, I actually have known the founder, the CEO of Rosotics for close to two years now, but we only invested in August. We got connected through, uh, do you know Matt Sherman? Uh, he's everywhere on Twitter. Yeah, um, yeah. I've known him because he interviewed me on a, his podcast for Wave Chat because um, he wanted to get to know me when I was doing that. We remained in contact. He's a super connector. He connected me with Christian LaRosa, who's the CEO um, in, I want to say, 2020. And... Passed at that time for a few different reasons. The valuation was too high at that time. Uh, Christian is a phenomenal engineer, but he, um, you know, everyone goes through their their journey of being an entrepreneur and the amount of growth that he's had in terms of being a CEO of a company, been phenomenal. Remained in contact, around came together in August. We still thought the combination of his passion, his engineering talent, and the overall size of the market, like heavy industries, a $4.7 trillion industry. 
you do the math, if you can get 1% of that, that's, that's pretty good. So they've proven out their, uh, their breakthrough and they have a bunch of contracts with uh, a bunch of aerospace partners and they're already generating quite a bit of revenue. Uh, so we're so excited for Christian and Rosotics. Um, you know, hopefully you'll see all the videos and photos and everything by the time this, this podcast comes out. But uh, this is what we were talking about or what I was talking about before of we're finally reaching the uh, the place where we've abstracted away enough complexity to start to have these exponential improvements in applications in the physical world. Uh, Rosotics is a proof point of that. And hopefully we'll have some some other good announcements with some of our other physical world, deep science uh, investments pretty soon too. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Got it, got it. So super interesting. And um, uh, you know, uh, wanted to understand, you know, how how you know before you invest into a startup, how can founders know whether a VC can add value? You know, what what are the signs for them to identify if this VC can really add value to them? Yeah, well, so I think it depends on the stage, and it depends on who you are as a founder and where you are on your founder journey. Right. We have founders in our portfolio that are in their 40s or 50s and they're on their second or third company and they have husband, wife, children. We have founders who are 22 and just graduated from university. And um, this is, you know, obviously the first company. Um, and like, what do you need in a partner? Because ideally your incentives are aligned with the person who's investing in your company and it's to drive forward this is the cool thing about investing. Everyone is aligned to work towards that ultimate goal of making sure the company is successful because you get paid in money afterwards if, <laughs> if it works out, like hopefully a lot of money. And right. if you, in the meantime, you do really cool stuff like with Rosotics, that's fucking awesome. You're 3D printing aerospace stuff. Like that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so it really, it starts with understanding yourself. And it's totally fine if you don't have all the answers, but are you someone who is like, listen, I've done the startup thing before. I understand how to balance things and how to not get burnt out. Um, and I'm 40 years old and I don't have the, the energy I had when I was 20. Um, understanding that and talking that over with, uh, with a VC of like, hey, they don't need to micromanage you. They don't need to check in on you and making sure you're not get burnt out. Uh, if you're someone who's like, dude, I just graduated from, you know, undergrad and I went to school in, you know, Florida and I don't know anybody in Silicon Valley. I just moved out here. Rely on me. I, I live in San Francisco. I've been out here for 15 years. Tim, my venture partner was born out here. Um, if you need us to connect you to our ecosystems, like more than happy to do that. Um, if you want to have a text message relationship where you can just like, text them at any point in the day. We have some relationships like that with our founders and it's awesome. Other founders, they 
will reach out to us via email when they need specific things, but they want to be heads down building at that same time. So it's really, again, like, and this is something going back to, to Mark Zuckerberg, being in tune with yourself and having a practice and an understanding, whether it's therapy or meditation or talking with your priest or rabbi, like introspection, because ultimately the only person you can control is yourself and you need to have a healthy way of interacting with the other people who are going to make your company successful. So figuring that out yourself and then being clear with VCs and if they don't get it, maybe it's not the right fit. Got it. And, uh, you, you know, post investment, you know, uh, I was wondering, you know, how should founders uh, ask investor, investors for help with, uh, you know, w- what should, uh, because a lot of time, you know, founders uh, are worried that, you know, maybe the VC, maybe the investors are busy and they won't be able to help, but is there anything in specific they should ask uh, to to extract as much as value from the investors? Yeah. I got news for you. The founders are always working way harder than the investors. <laughs> <laughs> so if the if the investors are too busy, and there have been times when I've been very busy and there's a less urgent request from a founder, that's totally fine. I'll just keep it in my inbox and get to it in a couple of days or something like that. But the um, I, I've been a founder. It's really fucking hard. Um, investors have a much easier job <laughs> than founders. It's not like it's easy, but it's much, much easier. Do not hesitate. And that's one of the things about being a founder is you need to leverage every possible advantage you can get because the odds are so stacked against you. And hopefully the person you're partnering with as an investor understands that and they're trying to get you off zero. They would just want to make sure that your company, especially at the pre-seed and seed, doesn't flame out and you don't get burned out and you don't go to zero because then they've lost all their money. Um, I've invested in several startups that they, it took a while for them. You know, there were pauses. There were, this is both as an angel and in the fund, there were pauses, there were pivots. There were times when they felt burned out. Some of the co-founders might've left or there might've been a reshuffling. Um, perfectly normal. And that's what it, <laughs> if you talk to any set of founders or any set of uh, people involved in startups, it's, you know, three squiggly do's and two up and downs and five steps backwards before you get to that, what it looked like the zero to one was. Um, so leverage every possible advantage you can get. And we, you know, as investors, hopefully have the understanding to help you leverage that and make things easier for you. Got it. And, uh, and, and, yeah, you, you know, you, you have a partner. How do you how do you structure and optimize your decision making process when you're looking to invest into into startups? Yeah, it's a so it's. I didn't realize this until I and I'm sure you have had a similar experience just working with other people, um, having a conversation with and getting things out loud in terms of your justification for <clears throat> why you think, oh, of course this will a thousand X. Of course this is, this founder is the right fit. Just having another person hear that and say, well, I don't know if that's the case. Then you're like, 
oh, right. I was just in my head and I need to actually sit down and there's a, a flaw in my logic. Just having a sounding board and talking about things is incredibly immensely helpful. And this is one of the reasons why uh, I highly recommend founders have at least one co-founder. Um, mm. Two or three is probably the right number being a solo founder is incredibly difficult just because you can't get out of your own head. Um, So yeah, it's just very beneficial to have another person specifically. And, you know, this is a great thing about Tim. Tim and I have very diverging viewpoints and opinions. We generally agree directionally on where things are going, but um, we have a lot of times very different viewpoints on particular things He's talked me out of things that I was gung-ho on. I've talked him into things around maybe he just didn't quite understand why it was, why it was valuable. Um, and having someone who is not like you, we're relatively similar, you know, two white dudes who are in tech, but having someone who has a differing perspective and doesn't agree with everything that you say is tremendously valuable. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, you've also, uh, you know, on your website mentioned, you know, uh, climate change is, uh, is, is, is a driver for w- volatility and there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, opportunities there. In fact, you know, Chamath, uh, who's a, uh, who's a VC at social capital said that the first trillionaire will be from climate change, uh, from climate tech. So, but, you know, what are the, some of the opportunities that you see in, you know, climate tech? Uh, which in, in the next couple of years, you know, you right. think, yeah. Uh, so we, we also list, and we talked a little bit about this earlier. Okay. What is driving a lot of this, a lot of this change, a lot of this shift in the Overton window, a lot of this um, shift in the global posture and attitude that, feels very different than say in 1950 or 1960. I'm not that old. I wasn't alive then, but based on what I've read. Um, so what, what stays the same, the laws of physics of the universe, human behavior and human biology, although maybe not for long, um, and human, human psychology, those things uh, are not changing at least anytime soon. What is different and it's how people react to the tools and systems around them, technology, but also um, the just the overall <laughs> landscape of existing in a physical world on the earth uh, and the people that exist um, and their demographics. So if the world is one degree hotter, that obviously humans are, you know, we try to escape our biological flesh suits that we're in, but we're such animals. It's ridiculous. I think you can, there's tons of studies around you put people in a room with one color versus another color, their cortisol. If it's red, the cortisol levels go through the roof. If it's blue, things drop judges make, uh, maybe this is apocryphal, but judges give 75% lighter sentences after lunch because they're, happy that they just had lunch versus right before lunch when they're angry because they're hungry. Um, So if you increase the temperature in the world and there's increased 
smoke from wildfires and there's increased, um, you know, flooding. That is something that affects on the scale of 8 billion people for the most part. It's just one plus one equals two. Like there is going to be some sort of second and third order effects. What all of those effects are, I don't know. Nobody knows. It's hard to predict the future, but yeah. you could imagine there is going to be maybe I, there's a thousand things. Uh, one, uh, a few are in the insurance space. Like you need to insure more against wildfires and floods in the um, travel space. Like maybe you need some uh, additional protection or you, more things will be accessible or inaccessible. Um, in the heavy industry space, maybe you need to build more resilient homes or, um, automobile, like the, the general physical being and space around you, if things are changing, the economy and technology needs to respond to it. Mm. And I agree with Chamath, there's going to be trillions and trillions of dollars of, uh, gross product or growth coming out of it. Mm. Got it. And, and you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's the, what's your favorite business book? I have two. Uh, one, well, three, actually. Okay. Um, is it okay if I do three? Yeah, no, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, Shoe Dog uh, by Phil Knight, um, which is just a great book and just tells the story of like the nitty gritty of business. Um, the Places That Scare You by Pema Chodron. She is a buddhist nun monk and talking about the journey of understanding yourself and you having control over what really drives you from a psychological perspective um and how to healthily deal with that so that you don't you know in business burn out or you're not being an asshole to your co-founder your co-worker or you understand from a broader psychological perspective, why are people losing their minds and um, fighting with each other on the streets in America? Why are there riots everywhere? Really getting to the root of this psychological situation. Um, so that's, and she's just an incredible author. And then from a specific startup point of view, zero to one, uh, there's a lot of stuff I don't agree with Peter Thiel on, but he's very smart about startups and all of the ways in which he enumerates the very specific aspects of an early stage startup are invaluable if you're beginning your starter or your uh, founder journey doing a startup. Got it, got it. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started uh, investing and you started Whitecap, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done thing differently? Yeah, I, I think... I probably, I, I don't know if there are too many things that I would have done that much differently. Of course, in retrospect, there are, oh man, I wish I would have bought Bitcoin at $5. Yeah. Um, everything that I've done so far, I've definitely learned a really solid lesson from, whether it be, oh shit, like I had had the money and I just wasn't, didn't have enough belief to invest that much, you know, five times as much or 10 times as much. And now the company is raising a 10 X or, um, 
not having a um like having to renege on a verbal commitment to a founder just because like I couldn't come up with the money in time. That shit is is tough because you want to, but you you just you can't really. Um, I think the more broadly, and this isn't from a vibe cap perspective, but a huge lesson that I learned in 2021, 2022 is, you know, I'm almost 40 years old and I was like, yeah, I've seen it all, you know, and I really hadn't seen it all because we hadn't seen that type of market in, in 90 years and really understanding that there can be large swings that are unprecedented in your lifetime of um, like, I only really started paying attention to markets in the economy in 2008, 2009. And, you know, it was close to 15 years, but um, Mm -hmm. there are lots of things that, that can happen just because they haven't happened in your lifetime or haven't happened before. Doesn't mean they can't happen. The Fed, raising rates or, you know, war in Ukraine or whatever the case may be. Um, really understanding that there are still black swans and outliers along the, the fat tail. Um, and just because something is the way it is now doesn't mean it's sort of always going to be that way. Um, I mean, a, a good story about this is the Egyptians who, ancient Egyptians who lived along the Nile, they would always record the floodwaters of the Nile every year. And it's like, okay, in a thousand years, this is the highest the floodwaters have ever been. Let's build the walls right above that. And then the next year, it was the highest, higher than that. So it's like, just because it hasn't happened in a thousand years, oh, you actually have to think about like what, what is possible, the long tail possibilities. So I definitely lost a lot of money in uh, 22. Um, and learning that, Hey, maybe you're, you still have a very limited perspective, even though you've been looking at stuff for 15, 20 years. Mm, got it. Love it. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools? For example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? I like, there's this thing called um, Chat GPT. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, no, some of the, the prompts that I use in Chat GPT that have become a, really invaluable resource are um, if there is a very dense piece of scientific literature that uses really jargony terms, like an abstract from a scientific paper, you say, hey, ChatGPT, explain this to me like I'm five. Mm -hmm. That it's like, okay, imagine you have two puzzle pieces and they're trying to fit together. Mm -hmm. For a uh, dumb VC like me, like it's really fantastic, especially in areas that are very jargony, like biotech, um, AI. I do know a little bit about AI, but um, things that deep, deep science or deep tech areas that feel impenetrable. If you can have get a an explanation that's jargony and have ChatGPT explain it to you like you're five years old. Uh, I find that really helpful. I also think the the prompt, and I love that we're talking about like the tools are all just like prompts in chat GPT now. Um, the, um, the other prompt that I use is summarize this article. You basically copy and paste the text of an article. Summarize this article, give title chapter headings and use bullet points for each of the the main parts of the 
the chapters or the title headings. And that gives a really good, it's almost like creating notes like the, you know, the people in college who made those really fantastic notes when they were uh, in lectures. Like I never did that, but I was always really jealous because they could go back and study it afterwards. That's really helpful for me um, from a, a long form article or some other piece of info. So those are the two prompts that I use in chat GPT now the most. Got it. No, absolutely. I, I, I've started using chat GPT and I totally love it. We're going to, I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, uh, Dave, uh, what is the best way we can reach out to you and know more about Whitecap? Uh, since you're, you're looking to uh, looking for more LPs who could uh, who are accredited investors. Yeah. Um, so we do still have allocation in our fund too. We are going to close it out by uh, by the end of Q2 in 2023. Um, so if your value is aligned, uh, it's for credit investors only, but if your value is aligned or you know someone that wants access to our uh, portfolio uh, of our fund too, we still have allocation open. We'd love to have a conversation. Uh, Dave at vibecap.co. I'm assuming you can put that in the show notes. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dave Goldblatt. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't know what my ad is, but you can just type in Dave Goldblatt. I look exactly like I look in my uh, profile picture. Um, and then vibecap.co. If you want to read our thesis in full, um, if you want to um, see our portfolio from both fund one and fund two. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. And, you know, if you have any questions about anything, I'm always looking to connect with, even if you're like, I am not doing a company. I am not uh, looking to LP into any funds, but I have a really interesting thing and I think you'd be interested in it. Like, I just love having conversations with cool, interesting people. So shoot me an email or a Twitter DM. Sure, no, absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I've really enjoyed my conversation with you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.